You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, our hosts have a rom-com meet-cute at the Glitter Apartment. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Mariani with my glasses and ponytail and overalls. Just gotta take off this ponytail and luxuriate my hair. And I am Adam Thomas, and I am from 1983 for some reason, even though I dress and act like current times. Well, current being 2001, specifically very pre-9-11. <laughs> right, right. We're here to talk about uh, romantic comedies, technically. That is the topic for the evening. Um, in honor of this week that we're releasing, this is Valentine's Day. So, a happy Valentine's Day out there to all you lovers. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting we're doing romantic comedies, and given, you know, the stereotype is that two straight dudes wouldn't necessarily want to talk about romantic comedies, but I think we both can enjoy a fun one. Yeah, I mean, a good movie's a good movie, whatever the genre. Mm-hmm. The ones that are super, super cheesy or only made to play on emotion and, or stereotypical, then yeah, of course they're awful. But you find that in any genre of film. Well, and plus now, honestly, it, it, it's weird. Romantic comedies sort of had, like a point in recent history where they were kind of overexposed, like I would say early 2000s, Dawn of the New Millennium. They were so ubiquitous and came out Mm -hmm. almost like every other week that it became like such a tired genre. And yet now in like this last decade where, you know, we kind of talked about this several times that like the mid-budget movies kind of died out. I almost feel nostalgic for the formulaic nature of romantic comedy that at least doesn't feel like it's so higher stakes or super low budget at the same time. I kind of miss having those on a regular basis anyway. Yeah, right, exactly. I, I mean, I agree with you. Nowadays, if uh, the title is a holiday, then, you know, it's it's just garbage. That's that's basically what you get now. You get these huge, huge budget ones where they can get every name actor they could possibly get and don't give a shit about the story or the plot. I mean, that's really what it is now. I mean, if we even get these movies, I think that's things there's so few and far between. Now, at least, you know, Netflix seems to be having, like, sort of the comeback for mm-hmm. the romantic comedy with, like, an Always Be My Maybe or Set It Up. Um, they, they, they've been introducing those back into at least the cultural zeitgeist in some way. And you know what? If, if nothing else, at least them living on in that sort of streaming spectrum is probably the best place for it, maybe. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. I mean, because that way the audience that is there can find them. For sure, yeah. Um, and we're talking about two movies. Um, one of them definitely is a romantic comedy. Uh, the other one's a bit dubious as to that declaration, which we'll talk about. Um, but we did pick both these movies at the end of our last episode, which if you're new, each week Adam and I pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to get closest to whichever of the other two film choices. Uh, one good, one bad. Um, and we end up discussing them on the next episode. And we'll be doing our picking for next week's show at the end of this particular episode. Uh, but the good pick we ended up with was the 1960 film The Apartment. And the bad film uh, was Glitter, uh, which was Adam's choice. And uh, we'll be discussing both 
both of those tonight. Uh, let's go ahead and get started then with my pick, The Apartment. A very warm, very wonderful story about a boy, a girl, and a very special kind of problem. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Jack Lemon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray. So, uh, The Apartment came out June 30th, 1960. Uh, it's our first non-Godzilla 60s movie that we've covered on the show. Very acclaimed movie for its time. Um, it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. It won for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Editing, and Best Set Decoration Black and White. So, uh, this is not a color picture, kids. This is an old-school, classy black-and-white movie um, from Billy Wilder, um, who's made some of the best films ever made, I would argue, uh, with, like, Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot. And I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about it, Adam, because you mentioned that you had not seen this movie before. Yeah, no, I haven't. I, You know, and the fact is, I don't even think I've even heard of it before, uh, other than through this show, because, correct me wrong, I think you said it the last episode, but this was a previous alt pick. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I hadn't heard of it before, but yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, anything old school Jack Lemmon, I'm, I'm already like into. I absolutely adore Jack Lemmon. And uh, how cute and pixie Shirley MacLaine was, and a lot of actors you recognize in here. I mean, a lot, a lot of them. I, I absolutely enjoyed it. It's not as out and out a comedy as you might think. It's actually kind of a dark movie. There's definitely some funny bits, if anything, just some, some of the Jack Lemmon reactions or like the neighbor or things like that, but uh, it's it's really really enjoyable. It took me a minute to get going with it, but once I was in, I was like in full. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, the basic premise is uh, Jack Lemon plays this guy who works for this insurance firm in New York, and he is sort of climbing the corporate ladder by mainly allowing his higher ups to use his apartment for use with their mistresses. I and mean, there's a lot of great people, as you mentioned, that you might recognize, like his main boss is Frederick Murray of, like, The Absent Mind Professor, or another Billy Wilder film, uh, Double Indemnity. Or uh, one of my favorites is uh, Ray Walston of uh, My Favorite Martian, popping up as uh, one of the guys who's so fucking funny. He's the one that has the encounter at the bar with the Marilyn Monroe-esque woman. Um, and he calls up Jack Lemmon, just like, let me have 45 minutes, make it 30. Just let oh, me yeah. go up there. So funny. Yeah. I know him as uh, Mice and Men. Yes. Yeah, that guy. God, what a face on him still. Like, but no, he's absolutely fantastic. And hey, buddy boy, <laughs> like everybody's a pig in this movie. No, there's a lot of piggish behavior, even from like a Fred McMurray, who was at this time known for like a lot of the, sort of those '50s era Disney movies. And not too long after, he do like Shaggy Da and stuff like that. And I love the fact that he's so matter of fact about how much of a monster he is, but he treats it in such a way where he has this sort of like world purview that he keeps consistent of just like, well, that's impossible. I can't possibly do this particular thing. He has such a weak logic that's so inhuman but at the same time it like feels such like such a consistency for the character and that you see Jack Lemmon kind of being courted into that and losing his own sort of like actual empathy for people as he kind of rises up this way um and they have such great back and forth like I love the meeting scene between him and Jack Lemmon and the thing with the nasal spray which was completely like improvised as such a perfect bit of physical comedy but yeah there's, there's a great sort of contrast between sort of heightened humor and the actual sort of humanity of all these characters, where I, I would say the first half of it does feel very much like a comedy. And then there's a certain point when, like, Shirley MacLaine's character becomes more of an actual character 
that it turns into being a much more sort of like human dramedy, uh, leaning toward the drama with a, a certain action that takes place. I don't know that a movie like this could exist nowadays. I mean, it could maybe, but it, 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 there's so much toxic behavior and attitudes in this movie. To where there's even certain scenes or certain dialogues or whatever that I even found myself feeling a little uncomfortable. Um, uh, there's certain moments in particular, like the moment where Jack Lemmon sort of charms Shirley McLean with like, oh, I, I looked in your card catalog and I got your social security number and your address. Right, dude. Or the doctor slapping the living piss out of Shirley McLean to wake her up. I mean, he is just hauling off, man. He hits her like six or eight times. That's true. There, there are certain details, definitely, that do f- make it feel very much of the 60s, but I think a lot of, like, the bigger, broader themes about it, especially sort of, like, people's humanity being sort of tossed aside for, like, gain of the corporate ladder feels incredibly indelible to this day. A lot of that kind of stuff, I think, still rings true, despite some of the details being very dated. Oh, sure. I mean, I wouldn't doubt there's still scenarios like this going on. And I mean, in fact, I, I think we kind of have been confirmed that with certain recent uh, movie executives and things like that who, you know, force people to do things to sort of work their way up, whether it's, you know, sexually with a female or basically, you know, using Jack Lemon, like, you know, if you don't do this for us and, you know, you're going to get fired or we're not going to go to bat for you or you won't get your promotion or you won't. I mean, it's pretty, uh, I don't know if I want to say bleak, but it's kind of like a slimy feeling. Well, yeah, and I like the fact that Jack Lemmon isn't necessarily just a quote-unquote nice guy the whole time. I like the fact that the movie makes him earn his happy ending, especially with, like, even after the suicide attempt happens, he ends up very much more concerned about Frederick Murray's sort of, like, character not being revealed as an adulterer, his good name not being tarnished, as opposed to Shirley MacLaine's actual, like, sanity or her well-being in any way. I, I like the fact that he eventually develops that realization of, like, oh, why am I protecting this dude and completely putting this woman to the side like he did, ultimately. And I think it's through actually hanging out with her and actually getting to know her as a person as opposed to just the elevator girl that he does. And I think the movie is so smart about how it develops that Jack Lemmon character. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the thing is, there's definite hints of the good guy character even when he is going down sort of trying to climb the corporate ladder. Like, even, you know, maybe you shouldn't say it to me. Maybe you should talk to her. Or, you know, what about your wife? Or, you know, hey, she's a person. She's got feelings, too. You know, things like that. But, yeah, he's definitely also looking out for number one for quite a bit of the time. The only reason he's looking out for Sheldrake is simply because he's kissing ass to get a promotion. He doesn't really care about him. He just wants the promotion. But, yeah, I mean, he obviously does sort of have an epiphany or a moment of clarity or anything when fucking Sheldrake and the want to use the apartment again oh my god this fucking guy there is growth to the character development to the character but there's also snippets i i'd say throughout the whole film of him really being a good guy but he does do you know not necessarily wrong things he doesn't do necessarily anything really bad but 
he'll look the other way or, or maybe forget about something in order to or his position. Right, and at the same time, I still like the fact that Shirley MacLaine isn't just the character to kind of motivate that change either. She definitely has her own sort of growth as a person when she goes down to a certain low. Like, the bit where Fred McMurray hands her $100 is so fucking sad, <laughs> especially the fact that it's on Christmas Eve, and she's like, leaves herself alone in that apartment. It's so fucking sad. After she gives him, like, a thoughtful gift. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he just tosses up like, oh, yeah. Anyway, I didn't get you anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't like shopping, so here's a hundred dollars. I got nice alligator bags down at Corley's. Like, oh, and she has so and she has so many like liners that are so tragically funny. Like even her thing, oh. like, well, as long as it's paid for, it's like, oh god. Yeah, she's starting to strip. Well, you paid for it. Oh god, and then and then his response: Don't talk like that. Don't make yourself cheap. <laughs> what a fucking prick. Oh, I know. And, uh, but at the same time, I really like how they sort of make all, all of her sort of moments like that feel very human and very real. And I think McLean, who can often be accused of being a bit sort of spacey, especially as of late, I love how much like she feels like somebody who would later inspire a lot of Pixie Dream Girl characters, but what they're missing is the authenticity of this particular character and how she brings a lot of that to that role. And I think especially the way that like she kind of handles like the awkward office politics and how she still sort of asserts herself the whole time and even how she like um, she just tries to like help out Jack Lemon, even though she's in such a depressive rut, like at the Christmas party and handing him the mirror and shit like that. Just like, oh, it just reminds me of how I feel. It's devastating, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like she's too much of like a um, sad girl stereotype, nor a manic pixie dream girl at the same time either. No, I definitely agree. There's meat to her character. She's not just the reason for these guys to, you know, change or become better. Like she's got a lot to her i mean a lot to her she's going through some shit man <laughs> you know anybody who tries to od on sleeping pills because their boss at their you know they're the mistress their boss hands a fucking hundred dollars oh my god it, oh and the suicide note that was oh my god and then when he tells him you know oh yeah she, actually i have a hundred dollar bill for you oh okay <laughs> you fucking prick there's there's no there's no remorse whatsoever uh he doesn't care it was kind of refreshing especially for a, a movie from 1960 that has this sort of underlying plot or the context of it for her to be like pretty much a fully formed fleshed out character uh to where you even you know she talks about how her family and then you even meet her brother-in-law and then she talks about all the other people she's the uh, four other men she's been with and how one of them's in prison till 65, but one told her to wait for him, you know, because he was embezzling, you know, shit like that. It, it was it was actually really, really cool. And I, I think smart. And that might be one of the main reasons why this movie is so endearing. Yeah. And I, but at the same time, like I like even some of the other sort of smaller characters who are like even some of the mistresses do have like, if not the most developed characters, a lot of like fun bits. Like I love the one mistress who just keeps doing the weird like song that she keeps saying like blah 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 or there's the one that Jack Lemon meets at the bar 
who is tremendous. I think that both of them just have such a weird, fun chemistry popping off of each other um, to the point where even during the serious moment of like the suicide attempt and Jack Lemmon's like scrambling to get somebody to help her out, like he kicks out this <laughs> this one woman and she's just like, "Oh, I'm gonna tell about the way you treated me, my husband who's in Cuba." <laughs> I can't pick out a weak character in the bunch. Like, even, like, the secretary and things like that, they even give her something to do. They even give her sort of a meat and potatoes, even if it is just one scene, you know, at the Christmas party. You know, the other the other people he works with to where, you know, well, yeah, what has Buddy Boy done for us lately? You know, I mean, you get where every character's coming from. There doesn't feel like any throwaway characters to me in this. I think that's always been a big strength of Billy Wilder as a director. I think it's just that there are no real small parts in a Billy Wilder movie. Even if you don't have the most lines, you have extremely memorable, like, one bit, or just even a facial tick, or movement, or anything like that. And he knows how to, like, spread that wealth out while also obviously giving some of the best stuff to the actual, like, main people. Like, Jack Lemmon has so many fun facial ticks and also, like, really charming bits. Like, I love the whole him straining his spaghetti with the fucking tennis racket. You should see my backhand. Here's me serving the meatballs. That crap. Or then even, he weirdly has the most authentic stuff he knows I think I've ever seen acted in a movie. When he actually gets, like, all stuffed up at work. And he has to do that great bit where he keeps calling people, just like, let me see if I can pencil you in here, and this and that. I think he has, the way that, like, I think only someone like a Tom Hanks is able to recreate sense, a great mixture of, like, hilarious perfect timing, but also genuine emotional honesty that few other actors, I think, could really portray. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think if you watch any, pretty much any Jack Lemmon uh, performances, roles, movies, even up until, you know, the end, he was always good. He was always good. Always a really good, I don't want to say physical actor, but, you know, expression. He just, he could just carry a whole scene just with a look. He He's absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And there is no doubt in my mind, I never once didn't believe that he was in sick as shit in that <laughs> scene. Like, it was so believable the way that, you know, when he goes to take the key out, he takes all his nasty-ass tissues out, puts them on the desk, and then picks them back up, shoves them back in his pocket. Like, yeah, there was no doubt in my mind he was he had a fever and a cold. Oh, no, or even just stuff like when he's drunk at the bar, and that one lady's trying to get his attention with the straws, and she keeps flowing over, and he's not at all looking her direction. It's just so, like, drunk and miserable in his own little corner. <laughs> I just love that. Even when he's standing up and, like, dancing with her and he's just almost, like, falling, tipping over like a leaning tower of Pisa <laughs> against that woman. It's so fucking funny. And he just, it never misses a beat. Anytime he has, like, any kind of comedic beat, it just works perfectly. Yeah, they're basic. they literally are dancing cheek to cheek and you almost get the, the idea they're propping each other up. <laughs> like that's why they're just going in big circles because one will start to sway one way and the other one has to go with them. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so what would you say sort of like would influence later sort of romantic comedies here? Do you see a lot of influence maybe either structurally or comedically or even with the chemistry that you've seen a lot of other romantic comedies to follow from here? Well, the one thing that I definitely do see is what it sort of reminds me of is any of the other, if you want to call them romantic movies, or romantic comedies or even romance movies to where there's some real heavy shit that comes into play with these characters too. It's not just boy meets girl. You know, about X comes back into boy's life. Girl thinks he's back together with the X and they split up. Or boy gets drunk and kisses somebody else. Or girl gets drunk and kisses somebody else. It's not It's not really anything like that. It's two people who are in a very serious sort of dark and messed up situation. 
and these circumstances that keep coming into play sort of not only do they push them together, but they drive them apart at the same time. But through it all, you know, you get the feeling that they're going to be okay. It's not, they're not cheating on each other. They don't get drunk and one of them hits the other one, nothing like that. It's just constant sets of circumstances. They're pushing them apart. And to me, that's more realistic than, you know, the, the typical stereotypical romantic comedies. So when it's, you know, there are some that are done right to me like that to where it's, it's believable, not necessarily the grand, the whole grand operating plot and everything else. I mean, not necessarily, but it's all realistic set of circumstances that you can see these real people going through and, you know, trying to get by and get through it either together or apart or come back together when you you feel you're a better person or healthy or whatever it is. So the sense of realism, I think, is something that I could see this movie influence a lot where people try to keep it maybe a little more grounded with certain romantic comedies than others. Yeah, I think particularly any of the more prestige ones that you might get from here, I think honestly like a big filmmaker who I could tell was influenced by like a Billy Wilder, someone like James L. Brooks, where if you watch any of his like movies that sort of blend drama and comedy and even the romantic stuff in particular, like A Terms of Endearment or Broadcast News or As Good As It Gets, I think you get a, a lot of that kind of like influence burring through from Billy Wilder to a guy like that, or even like not as prestige but as you get to like movies that try and like kind of have like a more realistic tone to them with in the middle of the romantic comedy, like a Judd Apatow, uh, you can, you can see sort of like the trickle down effect from here to there. Um, though at the same time, I think some of those directors don't also have the same visual panache that I think Wilder has here, which is, I think phenomenal too, and very underrated in terms of like the whole setting of the apartment or like the right outside the steps or the actual offices that we see later on, you get the sort of either complete lack of space or the immense amount of space. Like just the way Jack Lemmon is like at the front of a room that just has so many fucking desks behind him. And you see so much of like that contrast between the business environment where you have to like, where almost the vastness is contrasted by the small little offices or even how like cramped the apartment is that he ultimately goes back to. You, you see so much of like I think the the enormity and the smallness, the the differences of scale really work perfectly to tell the story of the characters. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, and the the set design Oscar or Academy Award, or whatever the fuck how pretentious we decide to be right now, uh, was definitely earned. Uh, that apartment looks lived in. The the office building you know, looks completely legit. I mean, that was more than likely a real sort of office building, at least when he's on the 19th floor. As far as the apartment, that's, I mean, it's a set, I'm, I'm guessing, but it looks legit and it, it totally works. Just the setup to where no matter where he is, if he's in the kitchen, if he's in the, you know, living room with that old ass TV and that remote, I loved it. But whether he's in the living room or in the kitchen or wherever he is, is the camera can be at one fixed point and you're always going to see him moving around in the apartment. It just works perfect. Yeah, and even I also just love the way that he immerses you, particularly in the holiday setting, where this mostly takes place over Christmas and then eventually into New Year's. I think, honestly, the whole New Year's section of this movie, the ending of this movie, is the best use of the holiday in a movie to me. I think because it's so much about, like, oh, old things are being thrown away and you're trying to renew yourself as a person. And just that wonderful shot of Shirley MacLaine like running from that tiki bar all the way over to, you know, Jack Lemmon's apartment. I just, I love that whole 
ending bit of this movie that I think has all of the oomph that you want out of a romantic comedy, but it feels so earned and joyful by the time you finally get there. And she just says, I think another phenomenal ending line of a movie, just shut up and deal. I agree. I love that. There was no, I love you too. I, I absolutely, absolutely adored that. And of course, this is the guy who did, you know, nobody's perfect already with some like it hot just the year earlier. The guy, the guy knows how to finish a movie perfectly. I mean, he's got, he's still got some stuff to prove. I don't know. You know, we'll see what his, <laughs> we'll see what his next, his next project is. I think he has too much being dead in his schedule to have a new project coming up. You know, that's a cop out. Uh, I know. Yeah. That's so lazy. Get back out of retirement. Get out of the grave. Come on. You've only been dead 40 years. Come on. Didn't stop Tupac. That's, where's our Billy Wilder hologram, everybody? That's what we really want out That's there. what we need. Exactly. Where's, when's he playing Coachella? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's got a feature for Maroon 5 at Coachella. <laughs> uh, but I think it's time to go ahead and transition out of the apartment. So, Adam, your final thoughts on the apartment. Is it one of my favorite films I watched for the show? Probably not. Uh, but, again, this is my first time seeing it. I, I could... Definitely watch this again, though. It's it's not one that, okay, I saw it, and I'll move on. Like, I would watch this again, and I think I would grow to like it more and more each time uh, because I'll know what to expect going in the second time. I'll, you know, I know the tone. I know the setup. Uh, so I, I did thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it, and it's, a you know, always solid Jack Lemmon performance, always great Billy Wilder film. Shirley MacLaine's cutest button and really good in it. And then, you know, her character does have something to do, which is kind of nice, especially in these type of films. Uh, Usually either the guy, the dumb, you know, country boy or the big city news reporter or whatever the fuck. They, you know, there's usually one of them who's sort of left behind. And I I don't feel like that happens here. I feel like everyone's given their due. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really sweet um, movie. It's It's a good time capsule of a film. It just it, it works on many many levels, and it, it's it's you don't get movies like this anymore, and I don't think we've gotten a movie like this in a long time. So uh, it, it's definitely worth a watch, and it's going to be a rewatch for me as well. Yeah, I mean it, it's so universal that even with like some of these dated details that might be in there now, sixty years later, there's still like so much you can glean off of this, and still so much that still resonates. For anybody like working the corporate culture, anybody who's had issues with depression, I think that's another thing. The sadness of the fact that we've had so many movies that don't know how to handle depression that well, and I think this movie is a perfect example of how to actually do that, where you're not necessarily decrying a person for having depression, but also not curing it either. It's definitely a movie that embraces the sadness that's going on here, mm-hmm. but also makes that like just a part of the fact that like, well, you can be sort of in this depressive state, but at the same time you can have somebody who supports you even through these rough times. And I just love the way this movie handles that, and I think McLean and Lem and the whole cast is perfect, and Billy Wilder is makes it such a visually engaging romantic comedy, which is something you don't usually get, especially in the last few decades of romantic comedies. They feel kind of visually stagnant. This one has so much to like really get you immersed in the setting. And yeah, it's a it's a great movie. It's one of the more watchable best picture winners out there. And if you know some of like the just that he gets a bit tense and gets a bit more emotionally heavy after a certain point, um, I, I think it's a good one to dive into even on this romantic holiday. We have another film to talk about, and before we talk about that film, uh, here's uh, an ad for an ESO show you can listen to right after ours. My name is Quoth. I tread paths by moonlight that others fear to speak of during the day. I've talked to gods, loved women, and written songs that make the minstrels weep. You may have heard of me. 
Join Mandy and her friends as they explore Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle. You can find us at castrequest.com or on the ESO network. All right, and uh, now let's talk about uh, another romantic comedy, Glitter. In a world where proving yourself is everything. Hey, Billy, can you repeat that verse? Okay. One woman is about to get the chance to go from unknown to a world she's only dreamed of. 20th Century Fox and Columbia Pictures present Music brought them together. Fame could tear them apart, but love will never let it end. Mariah Carey. Glitter. So, uh, Glitter came out September 21st, 2001, um, and uh, is a vehicle for one Mariah Carey, who was known prior to this, obviously, as a big number one hitter, still, you know, has a lot of uh, songs that resonate in the pop culture. Uh, Obviously, like, every Christmas we hear the All I Want for Christmas is You number um, all the time, and uh, this was her big sort of uh, passion project. She'd been wanting to do this for several years, and then got to do it in September of 2001, you have to say that's unfortunate. Yeah, because it was supposed to come out in like August or so, and then she had a lot of issues in her personal life that kind of delayed both the release of the film and the soundtrack. And the soundtrack, of course, came out on September 11th of 2001, and shockingly wasn't the big thing in the news that day. I'd arguably, uh, no, no, not not really. There's there's even like a a photo where you see like a bus ad. Oh no. Covered in ash and shit. Well, no, no, well, well, just like it's, the ash is a bit far away. But the point is, that was sort of the big thing at the time that made people say like, oh, that was probably a big reason why this didn't do as well. Um, but even if, you know, tragedy hadn't struck, even though this came out in August, I don't think it would have been that uh, successful. (laughs) No, no. And uh, I'm going to go right and dress it now. Uh, This was my choice. Yes, it was. And I picked this because... Typically, I stay away from bad romantic comedies. You can tell, for the most part, just by a preview whether it's going to be good or not. So I I tend to stay away from them. And and this was on several lists of the worst romantic comedies. So I'm like, oh, I remember that movie when it came out. I haven't seen it, so I'm going to pick it just to really pick a shit show. That's why this and Geely were my choices. If we haven't already done from Justin McKelly, that would have been in there too, believe me. But... This is not a comedy on purpose. They are not trying to be funny in this. The only sort of comedic levity they give you is with, you know, her two friends in like three scenes, which one of them is Debrat. Yes, her film debut. (laughs) This is a huge, huge pile of shit that raises so many questions. (laughs) So many questions. But, uh, you know, basically, plot is the little girl mom abandons her and she her mom was a singer but she can also sing so she's gets hired to be a backup singer for somebody and they end up using her voice to dub her this dj guy figures it out and sign and wants to produce her album and then she becomes like super famous all the while dating the dj and moving in with him and everything else and it just goes from there it's basically an unofficial remake of a star is born yeah, basically. I mean, it's basically. the same exact plot structure of A Star is Born. Yeah, it, it really, really is. Why did this take place in 1983? What was the point there? Because nobody is dressed like they're in the 80s whatsoever. Especially the DJ, the main character. He's got, like, frosted tips. 
He's wearing like sleeveless shirts with goddamn surfer necklaces and shit like that. Like, what is going on here? I, do, do we understand the point of it being in the 80s? It feels like it's definitely Mariah kind of trying to make a nostalgic throwback to, I guess, the era where she kind of fell in love with music. And even okay. on the soundtrack, there's a lot of attempts to kind of be that. Like, I know she wanted to collaborate with Prince, but couldn't. Though, at the same time, there's one song on the soundtrack that feels very clear. Like, did you just steal 1999 and not tell anybody? <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. The soundtrack, too, like... It, it's, well, I didn't listen to the whole soundtrack, but the songs that are in the film, they feel like somebody in 2001 who's never, like, really gotten into 80s pop music, just sort of listening to some of them and writing the music for it. Not necessarily lyrics, but the music. Like, this sounds like it's from the 80s. It all feels so phony and fabricated, all of it. Right, I think, and that's a big part of, like, why I this doesn't work for me. It's just that, like, I don't know if you were at all a Mariah Carey fan. And admittingly, for me, this weirdly, no, kind, of, really. this weirdly kind of skews my view of Mariah Carey because um, three movies were in rotation with my younger sisters where I would, like, wake up to go to school and I would hear either Annie, Grease, or this movie, or its soundtrack just playing. And immediately that kind of brought an aversion to me, sure. with, like, Mariah Carey in general. And then I sort of got to like her a bit more with, like, the um, We Belong Together era, or even the Touch My Body era, like, the, the later sort of albums that she did. And I honestly, like, went through a bit more research, just, like, actually going into some of, like, her older hits, especially, and realizing some of the things that were her hits, some things that weren't. And I think in all those, like, other things that made Mariah Carey an actual, like, music star, even if they kind of sounded manufactured, there was at least a sincerity in her voice. Mm-hmm. And that's totally missing here, both acting-wise and soundtrack-wise. Oh, completely. How is it that we were given Rami Malek lip-syncing, like, giving him shit for the way he was lip-syncing? She's doing it worse, and it's to her own fucking voice. What is happening here? It looks so phony, forced, ingenuine. And the thing is, she is not the worst musician-turned-actor I've ever seen. That I mean, I'll just go right on and say that. She's, she's not horrible, Unless it comes to, like, hard emotion. So, I mean, she's passable in a lot of it. But, god damn, is everybody else around her just just as bad. Well, I think that's the problem. Like, I bring up A Star Was Born, and obviously with that newer one, you had, like, a Lady Gaga kind of making her big turn at acting. What kind of worked to that movie's advantage was the fact that she, she had, like, a Bradley Cooper to actually kind of support her along at the same time, where she's trying her best, but also Cooper kind of has the experience to make that movie work as well as it does, versus Mariah Carey's screen partner here is uh, Mr. Max Beasley as Dice. Sure, from Torque fame. Of of course, of Torque fame, um, who is like a basement-level Mark Wahlberg, which is saying a lot. Oh, (laughs) God, dude, and his, his fucking accent is so phony. Like, the guy's English, and this... New Yorker accent he's trying to put on. It sounds like he's coming, like he's a 1960 stereotype compared to everybody else. And like he's going like, to be on in a production of Guys and Dolls right after this. <laughs> right, for sure. It's awful. Awful. And his name is Dice. I mean, just what a, just a fucking lazy, lazy writing. What a lazy name. What a lazy character. And the thing is, he's kind of a piece of shit, too. Oh, he's a horrible, monstrous piece of shit. Like, he, he's, he's... But the thing is, she's kind of a piece of shit, too. Like, there's not really many redeemable characters in this movie. 
Like she just flat out abandons her friends too, like for fame. There, there's no yeah. She goes back to them, but eh, there's you know at a point she's like eh whatever. But Adam, don't you see that they got back together in the shortest montage of all time? Yeah, that's all that matters, I guess. That's You're right. seriously the the biggest hilarious thing to me about this movie is the editing, the slow motion. Oh my god! There's that, that that weird slow motion moment where Max Beasley goes through the crowd and they all turn to like a fucking Windows Movie Maker effect <laughs> in the background <laughs> smear away, or when yeah. like, or when Mariah Carey becomes a star and the transition is like her exploding into stars for some reason. Yeah. Um, there's or like I mentioned, there's this really short montage where it's just like, guys, let's actually be friends again. Let's go shopping. And there's one shot of them walking down the street where it's like, yeah, we got new clothes. And then it cuts to the recording studio and the music cuts off. It's like that that wasn't a montage. It was one shot. <laughs> I know of them and of them in these awful gold outfits. <laughs> like what the fuck? It's like <laughs> What scene did you laugh out loud at? There has is there any that made you laugh? Well, I mean, there's that one, and then there's also I, I will say um, a, sort of the weird irony, and it was more of a confused puzzlement. Is a whole sequence in which Dice has this weird obsession with the fact that she wears like somewhat revealing clothing, and it's at yeah. this award show where he like afterward he's in the limo with her. It's like I can't believe you would feel that stuff that just like shows off all your stuff. Meanwhile, he's in this outfit where he's not wearing a shirt. He's wearing like no, a his coat. shirt is completely open. <laughs> and and there's no like actual undershirt underneath. And like it's tight like, leather pants, yeah. It's like oh, I can't believe you're revealing yourself like that. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> Where did you even get that outfit? I got it. You got it for me. And then that's the end of it. Like wait, what? So he bought it for her. And he's bitching at her for wearing it. Like what the fuck is going on? And he's so drunk. So you know, just this fake drunk and like cussing out her friends for no reason. Like what the fuck is going on here? I laughed. Super, super, super hard. Uh, you know, spoilers. When Terrence Howard shoots him in the fucking chest. <laughs> <laughs> and the transition of it where he just like holds up the gun and then black sound effect of gunshot. <laughs> Yet she still performs. He gets arrested and she leaves the Tonight Show to go bail him out. He gets murdered and she still does her concert because it's a Madison Square Garden. Like, what? Well, because she fuck? prefaced it with a very solemn make sure to value everyone around you because sometimes you might lose them. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then it's like he somehow posthumously sent her this fucking letter like when did he get her that letter he was murdered on that day well to be fair they, they do establish he has magical powers in the earlier scene where they write a song together telepathically <laughs> despite not being in the same building that's true he does have magic powers magic dice powers I forgot yeah and by the way I got some good news for you. Social services contacted me. They found your ma. And she's been clean and sober this whole for years. It wasn't narrated in his voice, but you doing that makes me wish it was. I wish the whole movie was. <laughs> but it's like, so he's been, she's been clean and sober for years. Why didn't she ever go try to find her daughter that she promised her I'll come back for you? And who became like a big star after a certain point. Right, and at the end, you see, right, she's out there. You know it's her. She's using her fucking name. So then at the end, you see her, and it's like, you're supposed to give a shit. Like, you're supposed to feel the emotion. Like, oh, she does love her. Oh, I'm so happy they're back together. Like, no, get the fuck out of here. 
It's just garbage. It's like I said, nobody in this movie is really fucking redeemable. I do love the fact that the transition of that is her going from her concert at Madison Square Garden to like, hey, this limo driver is going to drive you to Maryland. <laughs> like they drive for like the entire night. <laughs> I know he takes her to Maryland. <laughs> I thought the same thing. And then she gets out wearing those fucking heels and that dress. She can't even spread her legs to walk properly. in, And it looks so uncomfortable. Like, you could tell she's just sinking into the ground. <laughs> it's, it's fucking ridiculous. They're the Mariah Carey trying to cry. Oh, boy. Though, admittingly, doing some research at least into this, at least kind of explained at least some of the Mariah Carey issues to me, in terms of, like, the, the reason this got delayed was because she had a massive, like, nervous breakdown where she ended up getting diagnosed as bipolar and shit, and she had had the pressure of, like, making this album and being in her first movie, and she had recently had a big breakup, and all this combined with, like, bipolar disorder that was unfortunately happening at this time. Like, you can see it in probably the biggest legacy of this movie, to some degree, is her TRL appearance promoting it. Yeah. Um, which was, like, a, a big thing. I remember at the time, especially, like, so many people, like, really sound clipping that and making fun of it. And in retrospect, um, it rewatching it now, having known all this stuff, um, and even this movie, it definitely feels just like, oh, man, she's lost in a really just, like, sad way. <laughs> Where it's just like, man, I, I think it's just honestly a bummer that we kind of, you know, ended up treating her that way. And I think she, this movie sort of is not really widely available at all. We had to really scrounge to find it. It's not streaming anywhere. It's not much of any place for people to accessibly get it. And it feels like she almost wants to forget this point, not just on like, oh, it was commercial failure level, but also just like, this is associated with so much bad times and cursed stuff, including the release of it. <laughs> this just feels, this is like a cursed object. Yeah. It doesn't need to be around anybody. <laughs> I, I wonder if this is the reason why all that shit's been happening to me because I picked this movie. <laughs> I wonder if it's truly cursed. There's a reason this episode's delayed, folks. <laughs> Came out a bit later than our usual episode. It's because of this, because I picked it. That's why. <laughs> this is the cursed movie. Yep. Was this bought along with a monkey's paws, like a double bill kind of thing? Yeah, I got this in the lament configuration together. Oh, well, you know, I, I, <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with that. There's so many different configurations you can do with it. Right, exactly. You opened it, here's glitter. We should also mention that uh, the director is Alvandi uh, Curtis Hall. This is only his second and last film mm -hmm. as of yet, and he is a character actor who you might recognize from, um, amongst other things, he was um, Ben in uh, the first season of Daredevil. Yep. He's one of the bad guys in Die Hard 2. He's mm -hmm. coming to America. He's the one that sees him at the basketball game. He's like, my, my prince! And, you know, gets down and kneels in front of him. You know, this is the greatest day of my life. Uh, yeah, I was really surprised when I saw his name for director. I'm like, wait a minute. What? And uh kind of makes sense why uh, he hasn't maybe directed anything since. Well, he's directed a lot, just not movies. He's directed several episodes yeah, of television. Well, yeah, but no uh, no feature films. No, no, no I, 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 could, yeah. I could kind of see why. Uh, yeah. <laughs> considering, once again, it's a cursed project on every level. And it doesn't even feel like... Cause you know, maybe not talking about in terms of a romantic comedy thing, but in terms of, like, a musician movie vehicle, um, it just doesn't feel like it really services anybody's talents, necessarily, like a Mariah. Like, I think an actual grounded romantic comedy with a Mariah Carey 
would work a lot better. Or even if she were to do something now that kind of leaned into some of her, like, bigger pop star things. Like, probably her best scene in film is still in uh, Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping, where she's like, I'm so humble, I just related to that song so much, because I'm the <laughs> most probably, hum- Yeah, I'm the most <laughs> humble person I know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, do, do you think there's any potential to give Mariah Carey like a second shot in a movie? If it's not in like a pop star sort of uh, aspect, then no, I, I don't. I don't think she needs to be, you know, the lead or even the the sassy side character or anything like that. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's not like I said; she's not terrible. She's she's pretty. She's not the worst musician turned actor, but. This is just after this. This is just terrible. Just, just, just stop. Yes, which well, I guess we should also do with our discussion here of glitter. So, Adam, your final thoughts on glitter? I mean, it's it's garbage. It's it's absolute dog shit. It, it, is it? It is ultimately forgettable. I think, uh, unless someone brings it up to me, they're like, yeah, yeah, I saw that garbage. But I'm not gonna like if we do something at the, you know our two year anniversary, something like the worst movies we've reviewed. I probably won't remember this one unless I have unless I look at a list. Uh, so I mean, it is. It is what it is. It, it's just pure shit. It's exactly what you've heard it is. Let's put it that way. It has a reputation, and it's a well-earned reputation. Yes, it's uh, forgotten from the records for a lot of reasons. Though I think at the same time, actually, of being maybe the worst movie ever um, at, at that time and still kind of permeates somewhat, I don't think it's necessarily valid. I do agree. I think it's just very forgettable. If anything, that A Star Is Born thing I mentioned kind of fits because, weirdly, A Star Is Born was happening kind of like every 20 years, but we skipped between the Barbara Streisand version and the Bradley Cooper one. There's something missing in the middle. This kind of fits that perfectly. It feels like the perfect A Star is Born for like the early 2000s, which is to say it's really bad and unfocused and doesn't have much of any sort of like cohesiveness whatsoever. Um, it, it feels very much like sort of a doomed production in so many ways, not just with the release and even some Mariah Carey's like, um, issues that were happening behind the scenes, but to the point where the, the famous thing was this was her first and only project with Virgin Records, the soundtrack, and they paid her like $20 million to like leave Virgin Records, which is saying a lot that like it tanked that much, which like we said, isn't just because of, sort of the tragedy around it, but also it just has more to do with like, it's a really bad movie. It doesn't have that sort of interesting sincerity that Mariah Carey has as a pop star. It's just missing a lot of that. It's missing um, so much that... um the film itself is missing for good reason. Uh, that's the end of our two films that we're discussing for the evening. And uh, we uh, want to go ahead and before we do our picking for next week at the end of the episode, which we definitely recommend you stick around for, um, we are going to read some feedback uh, from all of you out there. Because every Monday on at DEDVPod, uh, that's our Facebook and Twitter page, we ask you about what are your favorite and least favorite things related to whatever topic that we're doing. And uh, so first up, uh, for our romantic comedies, when we ask you, like, hey, what are the good and bad examples of them? Uh, James Rodriguez says, for best, I'll go with Crazy Rich Asians, The Big Sick, Love, Simon, and Harold and Maude, and uh, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. Um, for worst, just go with it, Valentine's Day. And early from the, from the directors of Avengers Endgame, you, me, and Dupree. And then uh, Brian Kane says, uh, uh, there might not be a better ensemble romantic comedy cast than with uh, Love Actually. About a Boy is pretty great, too. It's hard to go wrong when the genre when it stars Hugh Grant. Um, if it stars Matthew McConaughey or Catherine Heigl, though, uh, you're going to have a bad time. I mean, yeah. I, I tend to stay away from... I think mean, Catherine Heigl's involved in and anything romantic comedy with Matthew McConaughey. I, I really, I really want nothing to do. It's do so with it. weird that that was his career for like a solid six or seven years. 
after a certain point. Like that's all he was doing, man. Yeah, kind of broke out like the mid to late nineties. It was like, oh man, this guy's gonna be our next great actor. And then the early parts of this decade were just full of romantic comedy schlock that he was just like putting himself into before the reconnaissance happened. And uh, now he's in sort of like another stalemate state where like he's in the jail and doing nothing. Yeah, that's what I heard. (laughs) Yes. I am a fan of Love Actually for what it, I think it's a really well shot film. I do have problems with it with certain characters and things like that, but I do think it's a it's a sort of holiday sort of classic as far as a Christmas movie. I think it's a really good Christmas movie. But I, I like I said, I tend to stay away from the newer romantic comedies. I do like a lot of the older ones. Like I absolutely love Some Like It Hot. I think that's one of my actually probably one of my favorite movies. Um, just because of Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, I think they are so good together. And plus, it's Marilyn Monroe. The newer ones, man, I, like I said earlier, anything with a holiday as the title, I just avoided. I mean, some of these more recent ones that were mentioned by, say, like a James, I do really agree with. Like, Crazy Rich Asians is a really fun romantic comedy one. It's, if nothing else, so visually lush. Like, the way that um, that movie is just directed, it feels so perfectly, like, over-the-top lavish. Where it feels like, oh, these are crazy rich people. They're just going about lavishly, and there's a lot of cute stuff. Another great ensemble cast there, like Aquafina um, and Michelle Yeoh, was so fucking good in that movie. It's like the actual villain, some other character, um, and uh, the Big Sick obviously was my alternate pick. I really like that movie quite a bit, um, even though it's not as recent. Uh, Something Wild, which is a more recent watch for me that James mentioned, I do love that movie. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the uh, one with. Um, uh, Jeff Daniels, where he plays a guy that kind of gets roped into a madcap adventure uh, by a Melanie Griffith. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, that's also one that takes a weird kind of darker turn with uh, Ray Liotta, and that was sort of like his breakout weird role <laughs> that got people. I think that's one of his first movie roles, if not his first movie role. Very, very early in his career. Yeah, that he mm-hmm. makes an impression in that movie. He's just like bad boyfriend to the max. Yeah. Yeah, he's terrifying. That is a great, great movie. It's a, it's an odd movie, but it's a, it's a great one. And, you know, one of my favorite movies is a romantic comedy I watch every year on not Valentine's Day, but a different February holiday. I would argue Groundhog Day is a great romantic comedy in its own weird sci-fi. It really is. Yeah, I absolutely love that movie. That movie is so, so fun. And plus, I mean, just Bill Murray and Andy McDowell have such great chemistry together. Oh, my God, yeah. Andy McDowell, just the bit where she's describing about the groundhog in the car, she's like, he comes out. Becker's little nose out there, and then Bill Murray makes fun of her. I love their dynamic. His uh, cynicalness and her sincerity just, like, meld really perfectly as the movie goes along. Even though, admittingly, like, that general premise might make it seem like he might take advantage of her, and he kind of does at a certain point. I love that he really, once again, earns that happy ending that he ends up getting. I agree. There's sort of reveal, too, where she has a problem with it, or there's scenes where she's constantly slapping him in the face every day. Or things like that. So, yeah, I, I do feel it's very, very earned. God, that is a good movie. What a classic. And I do agree also with Brian's uh, Shout Out to About a Boy, which is a movie that I feel kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Um, it's almost been 20 years since it came out. That's a tremendous little movie. But I think it's my favorite Hugh Grant performance. And also it's a very cute, adorable young Nicholas Holt before it became Beast as the boy. Yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that one. I remember they did the television show, which died a very quick death. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, I don't think I've actually ever sat and watched that movie. Uh, along with that romantic comedy feedback, we also had some feedback about our last episode, our DC Comics episode. Uh, for right off the bat, Lance Langford has been a guest on the show and does The Horror Returns. says, awesome to see you guys do Swamp Thing as the good pick. Well done. And I'm going to have to start calling Adam Tame, even though I believe that was Tori's nickname for me, but fine. 
Lance. That's cool. Yeah, whatever, Lance. You just got to fuck with me, huh? For no reason. You <laughs> fucking piece of shit. I can't wait till I'm back on your show again so we can host it for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you'll be on that episode that time. Who knows? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, Jenny Walker says, uh, we live in a parsing underwater society. Uh, Will Torres says, uh, Swamp Thing is really all about green male rage. And uh, Konyahita uh, from Instagram says, God, I remember always wanting to watch the Swamp Thing movie wh- whenever I could catch it on television. I also remember being terrified of that movie as a kid, so it's hilarious to hear you guys talk about how campy it is. I really have to rewatch it as an adult. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. We kind of talked about it on that episode. It's it's a silly, campy ride. Yeah, you can't go wrong. I mean, it's, it'll at least bring a smile to your face. Yes, for sure. And we should also mention, in the time since we recorded our last episode, um, I guess congratulations are in order for Joker, uh, given that it swept up a couple Academy Awards for uh, Score and Walking Phoenix himself. I think yeah. either of those were unexpected, necessarily. No, no. I, what wasn't unexpected that it didn't win more, to be honest. True. I, I expected it to win quite a bit, but I also did expect Parasite to take home uh, Best Picture. You're I wasn't full sure of about shit. No one expected that. <laughs> I, dude, I said that shit on our Oscar episode. Well, no, that you, you said it was a shoe in for international film, but not necessarily no, for best picture. No, I said best picture because we said, yeah, but you know, no, none of them have won before. And I was like, well, that might be it then. Yes, I did, buddy. I back to the it. tape. Back to the tape. Everybody. I'm at it, you fuck butt. <laughs> I absolutely called it. Uh, but uh, you know, but I'm, I'm I'm glad a better movie about society and uh, class disparity actually won over Joker. Uh yeah, I mean, I don't think Joker deserved the best picture. Uh, Parasite, mm. I, I've seen it once. Uh, I I need to watch it again. I think maybe I was expecting too much on my first watch. Not that I didn't like it. I did like it. But it wasn't like a five star for me or even a four star. It was right solid three, three and a half. Because the tone is not what you would expect at all. It's a very, very dark comedy. It's a super dark thriller comedy kind of thing. Yeah, it completely. It feels, it feels very much like sort of a South Korean Coen Brothers movie. In a lot yes, of that's that's a very good way to put it. I, I absolutely agree with that. So I want to rewatch it again. I own it. So I'll definitely watch it again. But uh, I would have liked to see uh, maybe Knives Out get an odd. Out of all the movies I've uh, seen, you know, that came out over the past year, and, uh, Knives Out might be my favorite. If not, it's right up there. It did get an original screenplay nomination, which Bong mm. Joon-ho did win. If nothing else, that Oscar ceremony was so worth it just for Bong Joon-ho's, like, adorable faces. Oh, he's adorable. <laughs> and making his little Oscar men make out. How fucking <laughs> cute. <laughs> And I mean, big ups, even if you're not the hugest Parasite person, like that dude has made so many interesting, weird movies over the last several years. And it's so nice to see him, of all people, get the sort of acknowledgement. It's so fascinating. I, I really am glad that he won. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And even if you're not a fan of him or even of his movies, you got to be, you know, a little bit excited of what the possibilities could come of this, of what yes. other films might get recognized or nominated or more mainstream attention, because this does nothing but open a door. It feels like such a left turn from last year when my Green Book won. It's the biggest left turn. <laughs> Completely. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what comes from this. I'm excited. So yeah, there's the the boundaries are endless, and uh, nothing else. I get to hear a bunch of uh, my relatives text me about like that movie's completely in Korean. I gotta read subtitles for that. Dude, I saw some asshole online, you know, posting in in a group like, "Is this available on Vudu?" And do they have a version that's dubbed? <laughs> Why the fuck would you want that? 
we here at Double H Double Bill are very much pro subs, not dubs. Dude, if you can watch a movie in its native tongue, watch it in its native tongue. The dubbing is always bad. It's always bad. Yeah. Really, the only dubs to watch are when it's kind of like elevating something that's kind of so bad it's fun, like a speed racer. Or yes. Like that. Yeah. Right. I agree. I agree. Like, yeah, yeah. Anime, anime is probably the funniest. Yes. We're like, I told you to get out of here. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Oh no, he turned fast. Oh. <laughs> I will at least say that Studio Ghibli also did a lot of great sort of like celebrity film dubs. Well, yeah, they were. They, well, they were smart. Yeah. That's smart to hire to bring in, you know, sort of recognizable American names to do the voice. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's very very smart. Yeah, G- Studio Ghibli. I mean, they do everything they do is gold. For them, I mean, they're yeah, amazing. But, of course, but let's stop being weebs here and thank everybody. Oh, out God. There. <laughs> uh, we want to thank all of you for that feedback. We want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Oh, and you can listen to his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks, Stanley Scarter, for the art that we use for our show. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, as I mentioned, at DEDBpod. Or you can email us feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Or you can uh, find my own individual account at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter and, and uh, Instagram and all these other places. And I also do some writing, both at uh, MarianiThomasStarboardPress.com, uh, where I write reviews and such. I'd have a Birds of Prey review out there, which uh, isn't doing that great at the box office right now, but I would recommend everybody see it. It's fun. It's, it's, it's worth uh, seeking out. Yeah, I want to see it. I mean, I'm curious about it. Uh, I mean, I'm not expecting a lot, but uh, it's got to be better than Suicide Squad. <laughs> Good lord. This the, the very little to any reference to Jared Little Joker at all. He's like in two shots from behind. That's literally in the use from Suicide Squad. That's all the Jared Leto Joker you get. Good. Uh, I also do some satirical superhero news writing at uh, truesuperherofans.com. And uh, you can find Adam uh, doing his big Mariah Carey number out there in Madison Square Garden. That's not true. That, 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 that's a lie. People, Thomas is a liar. We're just going to have to, you know, just accept it. No, I'm nowhere. I, I, I don't like being anywhere. I don't like being found. You you pref- you prefer to be in your little small hovel of an apartment with your stuffed up nose. Yeah, pretty much. But if you're in your own hovel of a little apartment, uh, you can uh, listen to podcasts like ours uh, by subscribing uh, to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms, uh, where you can also listen to any of the other ESO shows you can queue up right after ours. And uh, you can also dig into the archives of us over at Podbean, uh, where we have the first 67 episodes that weren't released on the ESO network. And uh, if nothing else, if you like the show, make sure to please rate, review, and and, uh, just share the show out there to give us more visibility. Yeah, I say it every week. Not that hard. Not that hard. Just go ahead and hit the hit the little share button. It helps us a lot. Just takes yep. a click and then it's all that's it. Yes, you can even say listen to these two fucking jerk offs. That'll work because somebody will listen to us. <laughs> yes, immediately great advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, Adam, before we leave, it's time to do our picking for next week. And next week is very special, Adam, uh, because uh, longtime listeners might know that uh, you have some people that uh, you really don't like, and uh, you have mentioned in a bit, but you have a list. Of people that you're not a huge fan of, especially actors. And uh, who was on the tippy top of that list, Adam? Oh, uh, uh, the subject matter for our next episode. One Mr. John Travolta. Oh my god, it's so weird! I know. Oh, oh my god, what's going on here? Oh, it's so weird. Oh, so weird. Oh my god, I can't believe we're doing an episode about that. Uh, but yes, uh, because next week is John Travolta's birthday. How old is that leathery fuck now? Uh, well, Mr. Travolta will be turning 66. 
not close enough to the precipice for me. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, you know, that uh, we're doing this episode, Adam, given how much you hate him, especially because for uh, the sort of back and forth we have with our dynamic of the show, um, you're actually tasked with the good picks, which is the main reason I decided to do this here, because I'm so curious as to what your good picks potentially would be for uh, Mr. Travolta, because you can even admit as much as you don't like him. He's been in a couple good movies, at least. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have to pry that out if you just maybe it's the law of averages uh you know so you have the two good picks and i have the two bad picks and uh, you've assigned a number between one and ten for both of your movies and same for me and so i'll pick a number between one and ten and whichever that number is closest to will be our good pick and same thing for my bad picks with your particular choice so adam your two good picks you know i'm gonna pick number three okay so at number two I have, which is probably my favorite John Travolta movie and probably my favorite performance of his uh, as Chili Palmer and Get Shorty. Not Be Cool. Be Cool is terrible, but Get Shorty. Interesting, Adam. I have only seen Be Cool. I have not seen Get Shorty. <laughs> oh, God. Be Cool is terrible. It's pretty bad. It's fucking terrible. Oh, God. <laughs> Steven Tyler is a, a role. Oh, no. No, but we're not talking about that when we're talking about the original. Get Shorty. I've been, this is one that's been on my watch list, and I'm glad uh, we finally get to see it here. What was your other pick, though? Uh, my other pick is what a lot of people think is a terrible movie. I don't think it's that bad, but I do think it's John Travolta's funniest performance. And that's Lucky Numbers. Oh, the Nori Ephron movie? Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that. The one with Lisa Kudrow, yeah. Yeah, it's like a dark comedy. Big cast in that one, too. Like Ed O'Neill, Mike Garantford, Bill Pullman. A lot of big names in it. Travolta's hilarious in it, to me. I think he's absolutely hilarious. So I went with one that I think is a good movie, one that a lot of people think is terrible, but I think both really strong performances from Travolta. All right. Well, uh, now fuck a butt. All right. Uh, <laughs> for my wide breadth of possibilities with a bad pick. Uh, oh fucking hell. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, uh, let's go number. You know, I'm gonna do the same fucking thing. Number three. Okay. Well, at uh, number four, I had um, another great comedy vehicle for him. And uh, it's a two-hander with him and a, a great comedy legend, Robin Williams, oh, Old Dogs from 2009. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, I haven't seen this one. Uh, of course I haven't seen this one. Oh, fucking hell. It's, it's on Disney Plus for all the kids. Oh, good. Great. I'm going to watch it with my kid. That'll be the real test. She's just like, Daddy, I love John Twovold. It's like, leave my house. <laughs> leave. Why is that man wearing a tight leather mask? <laughs> well, and then at my uh, alternate pick, um, at number eight, I had sort of the most notorious modern Travolta film, Gotti. Oh, for fuck's sake, thank God. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't, look, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I think that I would have, I would have called an alt. I, I'd have been like, nah, dude, I'm not watching Gotti. <laughs> like, if that was chosen, I'd be like, nah, dude, I'll watch Old Dogs. I'm not watching Gotti. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> Well, you're going to miss so much, like the great scene where Stacey Keach is like, look, you're part of the five boroughs, Brooklyn, <laughs> Manhattan, <laughs> you're oh, a native fuck. New Yorker, I need to tell you all of these things, and the ghost oh. of John Gotti telling you all of this in the fucking wraparounds. And also, I love him being older in prison, in really bad old age makeup, to play somebody who died when he was younger than John Travolta currently is now. <laughs> uh, well, you know why, dude? Because John Travolta still thinks he's young and attractive. 
Like truly, truly, he does. Look at—I mean, first of all, these fucking wigs. I mean, look at the fanatic. Oh, how young and hot he looked in that. But <laughs> these wigs and dye jobs and this horrible facial hair he'll sometimes have, and like well, that, you know, that horrible Oscars thing where he was trying to kiss Scarlett Johansson. Oh, let's get the let's put a pin in that because oh, we have a lot to discuss. I got a lot. I got a lot. I got a lot. I got. It's going to go off the rails. I'm telling you. Oh, right now. Next week is going to be a therapy session, basically, where I'm just oh, like in the be, corner, yeah. just like. Hmm, tell me about Jean Travolta, please. I'm going to change your life, buddy. <laughs> and we hope that you come back and have all your lives changed by that. Uh, but now we got to just walk off into the sunset after our big romantic comedy debut. Yeah, I'm not wearing a shirt because that's a style, I think. Good night, everybody. Bye. broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the TeePublic store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.